Welcome to The Window, a podcast about dining in the South and beyond. I'm Robert Moss, the author of Barbecue, the History of American Institution. I'm Hannah Raskin, food editor at The Post and Courier. Well, today we're doing the politics and protest uh, edition of The Window, going straight to the, the nation's capital to look at uh, some intersections between restaurants and the political process and uh, the politi- uh, well, the process of protesting. So we're uh, really happy today to have with us Tim Carmen, the food writer and critic at the Washington Post, which is in Washington D.C. Last time I checked, yeah. <laughs> but but you were here in Charleston visiting uh, and doing some stories and things. So we grabbed you and and uh, pulled you into the studio because we had a lot of things we want to talk about. Um, I know we're going to talk about barbecue and, and some political uh, kerfuffle, but I think we wanted to start off with a topic we've talked about a lot on the window in, in past episodes, which is this move to either abolish or amend or reform tipping in the restaurant industry. And then you've been on the sort of the ground reporting on what probably the latest uh, news in that, which is uh, Initiative 77, which was, I guess, a Washington, D.C., uh, what do you call it? The, it's not a municipality, the, with the district's actual policy. And what and what was that? What was Initiative 77, which just passed uh, recently? Well, it was a ballot initiative uh, put on the primary uh, ballot by a group out of New York called the Restaurant Opportunity Center United. And part of their mission, um, I think it's fair to say, is that they want to try to get rid of the tipped minimum wage, mm-hmm. which is, you know, it was like federally uh, approved like in the 60s and used to be tied to the federal minimum wage but then was uncoupled. So it's been stuck at like $2.13 federally across the United States for uh, over 20 years now. So, you know, and it's it's perceived as like a poverty wage now. Yeah, Uh, it really is. And for listeners who are interested in all that gory detail, we did an episode a couple of of episodes back. We went detailed into the history and and, and how we got to this bizarre thing where you can pay somebody $2.13 an hour as long as they get enough tips to... That's, That's right. Minimum wage. That's right. Yeah, and so the 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 ballot initiative seventy seven was to abolish, eventually abolish, over about a seven to eight year period, the tipped minimum wage. Uh, it, it was a very controversial issue in D.C. Wait, Tim, I have so many questions already, just about <laughs> sort of the the strategy that ROC pursued here. So, are they hoping to introduce similar initiatives elsewhere, and why did they choose the primary ballot in D.C. as the place to start? Well, you know, that's a good question. They they have uh, gone to other jurisdictions. They went up to Maine mm-hmm. and they they got a, a ballot initiative passed in Maine by voters. Uh, unfortunately for them, uh, the the state legislature then overturned it about less than a year later. So that was a success, then a startling failure. <laughs> um, then they brought it to D.C., Uh, They are now looking to work with New York. Uh, Governor Cuomo is looking at it uh, in that area. He seems to be very sympathetic to the idea of eliminating the tip wage. But D.C. was, I think they, you know, what better sort of symbolism than to take your battle to the nation's capital, Mm -hmm. show legislators that the people want it. And, uh, you know, try to see if it works. If it works in the district, you know, I think they, they would use that as uh, 
uh, I don't know, I guess a weapon to, to bring it to other areas. And yeah, say, it's certainly more significant to say Washington, D.C., the nation's capital passed this than to say Cleveland, Ohio, or somewhere like that. I think that's right. Play. Yeah, because, you know, D.C., you know, we are definitely the stepchild of all jurisdictions around the country because, you know, even though the people who live in Washington, D.C. approved this ballot initiative, it's not the end say on it. Uh, it has to go to Congress now. Congress gets to approve all of our little, uh, you know, voter initiatives here, uh, and they can overturn it, they can amend it, uh, so can the city council. So it's not clear yet whether it'll actually make it into law. Hmm. But so I think you're saying it's a matter of strategy. It got this issue in front of people from right. everywhere. And I didn't think about that angle, but yeah, if, if Congress is going to debate it, it now it's it, that's going to get national coverage. Well, and they live in the district, yeah, so in a way aware that, of it. Yeah, of Ohio's legislature was... Cover, you know, debating it, it wouldn't get quite the same right. Uh, right. attention in the press. That's okay. So initially, it was thought that it was not going to pass, correct? Or was it back and I think forth it was and always, up and down? Okay. It was always thought to pass. It was, okay. Yes. Uh, you know, I think the restaurant industry put a lot of money into it, uh, more money than the proponents of Initiative 77. Uh, you know, and they, they had a lot to lose uh, from their perception. You know, they... They see it as like their way to to keep a thriving restaurant industry in in the nation's capital going. Um, they see it as uh, uh, servers losing losing their wages, a uh, significant amount of wages. Um, they see it as a step backwards uh, on the, the I guess the forward thrust of the culinary scene in the capital. Right. And what was interesting to me watching it from afar is it did seem to create some strange bedfellows, right? I mean, there were some people you think are always on the 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 side of workers' rights, but saying, too, that if this was implemented, then maybe women or people of color would have more trouble for a restaurant because now they're shouldering the labor costs they used to pass on to customers. I, 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 I've always been wanting to be like, well, if Jose Andres says to do it, I guess you do it. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, it's like, right. what it does. So can you break down a little bit the pros and cons? Well, I and, think that was very interesting when yeah. Jose Andres, uh, the yeah, everyone I think knows who Jose is. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly, after his uh, relief efforts in Puerto Rico, is now a, basically I, a national I, figure. I, I was listening. To, I feel like now, you know, in newspapers, always have shorthand yep. to introduce him. And his is just like American hero, yep. Jose Andres. Right. So, yeah. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. Jose Andres slash American, American hero. American hero. Um, right. But I think you know, once Jose came out in favor of it, uh, boy, I you know, I thought it was probably going to be dead. But I think, you know, if you read between the lines of what Jose said, he was supportive, but he was also towing this very fine line. I felt like he was also saying that he understood why they were coming, bringing this forward. Um, but other restaurateurs were dead set against it, much more than Jose was. And, you know, I, th I think you're talking about the odd bedfellows. The, to to me, the the really unusual ones were the servers, mm -hmm. because guess, right, right. you know, to me, it's like they came under. They assumed, uh, right or wrong, that if this passed, that they would no longer get tips. And you know, from the reporting that I and others have done, it's like if you look at the states where there is only one minimum wage and there isn't a tipped minimum wage, people still tip. Right. People go to California. I go to California and I go to a restaurant. I still tip. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like I. Until recently, I don't think I even knew they didn't have a tipped minimum yeah. wage. Right, because to be clear, you as a customer are not being asked to make up the difference between the tipped minimum wage and that state's minimum wage. Yep. It's up to the restaurateur to work it into prices if he or she so chooses. Well, I think, though, on just the – I was really surprised by the reaction. Not, not that the restaurant industry would necessarily be 
against it, but the strong negative reaction that they had. But I think for mechanically, what this means is that a rest, as a restaurateur, rather than paying two thirteen an hour, you now have to pay fifteen dollars an hour. So you have an immediate eventually. You, well, yes, that's right. It will step up, mm-hmm. but at some point, you'll be paying fifteen dollars an hour to your staff. So that's a check you have to write that comes out of your salary costs. But at the same time, couldn't in theory you uh, raise your prices and pass that on to the customer? And I think that's really what restaurateurs were saying: is that we'll, if we raise our prices, our customers will leave. And I guess I'm trying to understand. Where, as a restaurateur, and I've got seven years to step this in, so I'm doing right, it gradually. Right. Where do they see the big um, disaster to the business? Like coming? in year three, does everyone or, or, stop or, or just up? or why are they are they just think they can't raise prices or? So I there... think you know I, there's a lot of talk about if you raise the minimum wage to the full minimum wage and, and get rid of tip minimum wage, what that cost really is. Everyone thinks that, okay, you're already paying 20% on your bill, right? So why don't you just raise menu prices 20%, cover the labor costs for your staff. Easy. It's yeah. the same thing. You're paying the same thing. But if you if you talk to the restaurateurs, they'll say it's not the same price because once you – and I don't even understand the complete uh, – you know, finances of all this. But if you start increasing your payroll, then your insurance taxes go up. Mm-hmm. Your payroll, payroll taxes tax go up. up. You start paying more in FICA. So you have to have more cash on hand to start paying all these different things. And they're saying it's about a 30 to 40% yeah. increase to your 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 bottom line, all your costs of running a restaurant. Now, that may be an exaggeration to try to get them to not pass the initiative. But I... I it seems legitimate that it's going to be more than just the 20% that people well, are putting it on. Is. And, and because they've been paying servers under the table, essentially. I mean, it's a cash tip in many cases. Which you're supposed to you're report. You're supposed to count it. You're but, supposed right. to report it. But, right. <laughs> right. But so it's, it's a, yeah. Although so the, most of that stuff now goes through a credit cards. So it's, it's like, you know, there's very little cash, I think, that comes yeah. in. So a lot of that is reported. But it depends, I think, on how the restaurant handles that money. Do they actually flow it through their payroll or do they have a separate right. cash uh, account? that they, you know, they'll say all the tips go into this one account and we just give you those tips and you are responsible for reporting all that. Well, I thought it was, you mentioned down in California and I I recently visited Seattle and went out eating just with with a family. And I I think Matthew Iglesias at, at at Vox had asked this question in a, in a tweet or something, which is, is dining in Seattle significantly different than the way restaurants work in, in D.C. and New York? And the answer is really no. I, I saw no visible difference of you know between the two. I, I sort of feel like when it comes to the restaurateur's reaction, this is a lot like what we got in a you know, decade or so ago when cities throughout the country were banning smoking in restaurants and bars. The Restaurant Association was all against that. It was basically had all these dire scenarios about how now mm-hmm. all our customers are going to go away. They're, they're going to stay at home where they can smoke or whatever. It's going to kill my business. Last I checked, that hasn't it, it really killed any restaurateur's business. That was such a and, chicken little issue. Yeah. It's like, boy, I can remember when everyone was saying it was yeah. going to kill their industry yeah, right. to not have people have a smoking section in the dining room or at least smoke in the bar. It'll kill the bar business. Well... It didn't. It yeah. didn't. But I think the problem with that comparison is Americans did stop smoking, maybe because they had nowhere to go smoke. But it, I don't know the cause and effect, but they don't smoke as much. Americans will never want to stop saving money. I well, mean, they, they never be like, oh, you know, now I just want to waste that's money. That's true. But I, I, I feel like it's it's a phenomenon of just the natural resistance to change and the unknown, which is 
I, I know this system. I understand very well the dynamics of if I raise a menu a dollar, here's what's going to happen. I sort of have all my food costs and labor costs worked out. I don't know the math in the new one, and therefore I'm going to assume the worst. I think you get that in, with uh, servers as well. Um, Philip Cohen, who's one of the uh, podcasters on uh, F&B Radio, a podcast here in Charleston, they, they did a whole thing on tipping, and, and, and those three podcasters all work in the, in the restaurant industry as servers. And he basically was saying that I don't think I want to get rid of tipping because I, I think I'll probably make more money under this system. And I think it's the same thing with servers, which is – you take the compensation you know, and you've been working this for years, mm-hmm. and you sort of understand how the tipping works. And you, now you have a new model where I'm going to get a flat, a bigger check, but we're going to pool tips, and I don't know what my pay students will do. I, I sort of know how to goose a tip through certain you know, good service tricks and that kind of thing. So I think it's the same thing, which is just a lot of nervousness on the part of people who are, are moving out into something unknown. Sure, the fear of the unknown is always big for I mean anyone in any situation. I mean, I, I there was a a story in the New York Times this week about uh, uh, California San restaurants Francisco, that yeah. were not uh, were moving away from the server model because of increasing prices, and I think some saw that as a slap against this one wage kind of idea. But I think San Francisco is so unique. I don't think you can yeah. begin to say that this is all about paying people a fair wage. Yeah, I think I mean, a lot may, of that's that's part of it. But I mean, you start talking about the expense, the yeah. real estate, the rents. Right. I mean, the study also came out this week that what it's a low income in San Francisco is one hundred and eleven thousand dollars a that's year. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> but you know, if you look at the rents and you do the math, no, I know it's like that's, you how, that's how you. And I think a lot of the, the the that move in, in, San, in San Francisco restaurants toward you know, away from servers or counter service and that type of thing and, and having your your patrons clean up the tables is a response to the the housing expense in San Francisco and they're having a, such a hard time getting anybody who can afford to live there to come work for them or they're they're commuting two hours in from these remote places. Oh, I thought you were going to say it was like from nostalgia. Like they don't no, they get to do dishes nostalgia. at home because <laughs> no, they can't no, live no, there. No, so. no. Yeah. This is not cook your own steak. Right, right, <laughs> right, right, right. Um, My favorite. But I yeah, no, you, you're well, fond of that. <laughs> but, but I think that there are, there's a lot more to it than just the, the tipping a minimum wage. There is the, the cost of living in urban centers that is driving well, a lot of the labor issues. Right, and I think part of it is that you start looking at paying, you know, servers and line cooks um, $15 an hour, and you look at what the cost of living is in these cities, and they're like, I'm not going to live here. Right. And so that's a real big problem. Right. It's like a big problem in San Francisco, and I think it's it's becoming a, a big problem in, in like, D.C. Yeah. One of the things you wrote about in, in the various pieces that, that, that in your reporting on Initiative 77 was what – I think we sometimes gets missed, um, though certainly the Restaurant Opportunity Center is focusing on it. Is it it's almost like a two-tier debate here when you, when you start talking about tipping in restaurants between sort of the fine dining restaurants where you're having tech checks of $200, $300 for a, a table versus the smaller like – you know, diner type or family type restaurants where you know the much lower lower price. How do you see that that playing in? Because if like if you're waiting table somewhere where the check is t- typical check is twelve or twenty dollars, it's will be a little bit d- different dynamic with that. It's completely different. I mean, people that go to like a prefix meal, a, a, a menu tasting, they. If you put a, if you just roll the costs into that meal, it's like they don't think twice about it because it's like a special occasion restaurant. You're already prepared to shell out a ton of money for that meal. But you go to a Denny's, you go to an IHOP, uh, and you talk to the people there. It's like 
they're, these check, I don't know what their check averages are, but it's got to be low, right? Even a family of four can probably get out of there for 50 bucks or less. And sometimes they only get a few dollars. Sometimes they get stiffed. And I, I talked to a couple of servers, uh, one at a Denny's and one at an IHOP, and they were, you know, some of them didn't even know the details of Initiative 77. But when, I, when yeah. I explained to them what it meant, they were like, oh, yeah, I want that. I, I definitely want that. Because they don't have the income potential. I mean, the servers you mentioned work at Fig. You know, yeah. if you sell a $300 bottle of wine, you with just- With a 20% tip on that. With a 20% that, tip. That, yeah. I mean, that's more than people at IHOP are going to make all day. And, and also, the business doesn't the scale that much. I mean, you, you can cover roughly, maybe you can maybe handle one or two more tables at an IHOP-type restaurant than you could at a Fig, where you have a little more intensive service. But it's not, you know, you're, may, you're not going to be able to make up it with volume if you're waiting tables at somewhere where the average check is $20. Oh, yeah. Anyone who's ever waited tables. No, I mean, working yeah. in like a, so much you can a diner <laughs> is no easier than working at a fine dining restaurant. And, and Hannah, you've done a lot of reporting on... Because I've done a lot of waitressing. Yeah. I've done that too. <laughs> <laughs> but you've also done a lot of reporting on, on wage theft and, yeah. and, and some of the tipping issues in, in restaurants here in South Carolina. And I think where a lot of that comes in, and we were talking about the accounting for tips and things earlier... It's not at your big ticket restaurants run by like these big restaurant dining groups. It's usually at the lower end restaurants with the smaller checks, probably a lot more cash, uh, a lot more stuff off the books. And those are the same people today who likely are the ones getting tips stolen, oh. uh, uh, which would move from this cash off the books business to much more of a $15 an hour. No, like check. anything else, the least powerful people are going to be the most affected. So often it's, you know, immigrant labor. I mean, that, this is, that's where we see these things happening. It's interesting. One of the things I'm hearing most about tipping from servers right now is there seems to be growing animosity toward the credit card processing fees, which mm -hmm. can legally be passed along to servers, which a lot of servers don't know. And so... They're like, why am I paying for customers to use credit cards? Oh, I didn't um, know about that. There's a California's outlawed it, as has uh, I don't know three or four other. How does states. that work? So, like, if if you're at the end of the night when they're processing all the payments are on the credit card and there's a tip on there. If there's a processing fee, they take it out of the tip and not out of the money that goes to the restaurant? Take it out of their money. That check that you – that ran – you know, if 2% yeah. on that check was – it cost $2 for the restaurant to run that check, you have to pay $2 basically for the privilege so of waiting on that table. This is where – and obviously, you know, I'm, I'm on the record as saying tip – this is where tipping is just ludicrous – is how untransparent is that to the person well, even to the servers. Yeah, to, I mean, a lot people. of them do. You know, I, so the complaints I hear from servers are like, can you believe what, you know, the legal thing my boss is doing? Like, unfortunately, it's not illegal. So it stands now. The referendum is passed, but now it has to go through a couple more steps. Uh, the mayor or the I was just checking with our uh, political reporter uh, this morning, and he just – He has uh, nothing else to do this week. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, just checking. And apparently the, the council's in recess right now, so they won't take it up till they get back from summer recess. And uh, then we'll see what happens. He said they're being very tight-lipped on where they stood. But I think you can read the tea leaves because um, I think 10 uh, – the vast majority of council members were against 77. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they're being – they're going to be lobbied hard yeah. by the restaurant industry. And I'm assuming that most of them probably get some money in their campaign coffers. Yeah. Yeah, it's a lot sure. easier to, to lobby yeah. one – Council, as opposed to the entire population yeah, of, of yeah, DC. Yeah. I mean, one. I think one point to make in this that we haven't is that, you know, once if you pay one wage um, and you collect tips still, which a lot of restaurants do, they um, 
you have the ability now to take those tips and split it with the back mm-hmm. of the house. And if you're a fair and honest restaurateur, that means you start balancing the scales between the front and the back of the house, which is the big reason that a lot of people want to get rid of tipping anyway, because as prices go up and the the minimum wage goes up, it only benefits those really in the front of the house. That's a great point. And so again, just to clarify, so you mean because you're not paying the tip minimum, because mm-hmm. you're not claiming yeah. tips, any yep. tips above and beyond the actual minimum wage are eligible to be yeah. pooled. That's right. right. And, and pooled in a way that is split with people that typically don't get right. like It's illegal tips. for them to illegal get Illegal for currently. them now. Yes. The, the, you know, the Trump administration did this, and it, I think most everyone agrees that it if it's done honestly, if the restaurateur does – because by law now, you can't take those – if you don't claim the tip credit and you pool tips, you can split those with front – you know, cooks, line cooks, uh, bussers, dishwashers, and servers. Right. Now, manage, and managers and owners are the, yeah. specifically excluded from right. it. But, of course, you know, yep. we all know the, the story there. Yep. yep. And so I think I think ultimately, though, this is getting – I think where this is heading. And, and even if D.C. somehow it ends up sticking, it's going to be many years before it really ramps up. But I think it's just making people more and more aware that – it, you know, tipping is problematic, and I have a feeling it's on its way out. It's just going to take a long time to to work its way through the system. It's so ingrained. Yeah. People yeah. just – Oh, yeah. yeah. It's, it's going to be hard. So there are some other restaurants and uh, restaurant politics news coming out of D.C. recently. But not uh, in D.C. That part is Actually, I guess cold. it was uh, – <laughs> where, yeah, where, where is Lexington, the, the Virginia. Lexington, Virginia. Lexington, Virginia. Um, so – for those like me who've only been following it sort of partially uh, through social media. It, Lucky guy. It, well, it just it blew up so fast. I haven't had a chance to really yeah. look right. into it. So, Tim, you, you know what actually it. happened. Well, so uh, I'm sure as most of your listeners know by now, uh, there is a restaurant in Lexington, Virginia, which is outside of Washington, D.C., called The Red Hen. Uh, it shares a name with a, a restaurant in Washington, D.C. called The Red Hen. <laughs> Uh, but it's not; they're not affiliated, uh, completely separate entities. But uh, uh, so the White House press secretary, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, went to dinner there. I guess about a week ago now. To the one in Lexington, Virginia. The one in Lexington, and uh, she was uh, sat with her guests, including her husband, and they got a cheese plate. And uh, the owner was notified that Sarah was there. And uh, they were uncomfortable, so they called her, and she showed up at the restaurant, and she did a sort of quick poll. She has uh, servers who are uh, gay there. She has Latinos in the kitchen, like everyone does, and she got their opinions. And they apparently they all felt like they didn't want to serve her, so she asked Sarah to step outside. She didn't embarrass her at the table. She asked her to step outside, and she explained the situation, and she said, we would like you to leave. The rest of your party is is uh, okay to stay, but we would like to ask you to leave. And apparently it was cordial, uh, and uh, Sanders left, and then Did uh, the next— Did her party leave with her? Yes, the okay. party left with her. Yep. And then the next morning, uh, it all blew up yep. uh, because— uh, the White House press secretary used her official account to complain about not getting served. At didn't a even go to Yelp. She, right. she, yeah. she, she went <laughs> didn't even go to Yelp. Right. Yep. yep. 
And, uh, and so this sparked a debate, right, about, you know, about hospitality and, you know, what are restaurants obliged to do? Legally, they were not obliged to serve her. Um, no. Although, as you said, in the district, they would, right? If you can't. So there are 20 protected classes <laughs> okay. in Washington, D.C., because yep. we're a political town. Yep. And one of those protected classes, you know, along with like, you know, your uh, sex and 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 age and uh, religion, you know, sexual race, orientation or, yeah. and religion and all that is your political affiliation, and so restaurants cannot legally like kick refuse service to someone based on their political affiliations. Now you could make an argument that this was not right. because she's yeah. Republican. Right. That, that, that's yeah. To me, that in D.C. that right that protected class sort of makes sense because especially in a, in a city that at one time was so defined by the patronage system, you wouldn't want to be able to have like no Democrats could eat in these restaurants and no Republicans can stay in these hotels. It totally you know, makes sense. With right. the change of, of administration yeah. and all that, it would, yeah. it would be, it would be a disaster. If you could right. But again, as Tim was starting to say, this wasn't really but partisan. No, that's, it wasn't saying it wasn't we don't allow Republicans in right. here. Right. It yeah. Was, yeah. Or it wasn't her specifically. It wasn't yeah. because you're a Republican. It's because she's contributed to right. a administration that's done things that people are very unhappy about. Yeah, in that case, it's really, well, it feels to me like the the question is not like I'm, I'm kicking somebody out because of their political opinions or their political affiliation. It's more like I'm, it's you personally and what you do that I, you know, the, I'm choosing not to serve you individually. Right. right. As we said, it, it, she, it, he, she was making the staff uncomfortable. Yeah. So there was a protective element of it. And so it sounds like to me the analogy that's emerged that's, that's most apt, right? It's like, it's like someone who drank too much at the bar, right? It's yeah. someone who's posing a threat. It's someone who comes in with a gun. You know, you're allowed to say you can't come in here. We, we don't want that here. So, anyways, a lot of people disagree. A lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> well, I feel like people jump on this one, and, and like most things these days, with their their conclusion already made based upon which which camp you're in. And I'm going to support whatever my team is 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 sure. saying on, on this one. What happened with the red hen in in D.C. The right. other red hen. Well, they of course were because it was around Washington, D.C., and it was reported by the Post, uh, people assumed uh, wrongly that it was it was this incident happened at the Red Hen in D.C. And so, you know, people started spamming their Twitter account, making false reservations, uh, basically making life very uncomfortable. And, of course, going to Yelp page yeah. and put, posting negative reviews, which, you know, people think it's sort of a, a protest. But this actually has a real financial hit. It's like there's been studies and, you know, Hannah's written a book about Yelp mm -hmm. and knows <laughs> about, you know, what – a one-star difference can Absolutely. make to a restaurant. Yeah. Right, right. And we should, it's not that there's anything wrong with like being a little sandwich shop, but that's not what this is. This is a very established and respected restaurant. It is, it yeah. is. Yeah. It is a like, um, you know, modern uh, Italian place where they make their own pasta, you know, small plates. It's, it's, a, it's a really fine little restaurant. Yeah, I think I've been there. I liked it. Um, I don't know. So is there any takeaway from all this? I felt like we had to talk well, about I, it because you're here. But. I think there is a, a takeaway in the sense of I'm not, you know, I, I think it, the, the piling on people on social media, I'm never going to endorse that. But it, but I think it does indicate that the restaurant business is getting in, involved more and more in the politics of the time. And I think by its nature, when you're talking about who really works in the kitchens of these restaurants and, and who – um, you know, and to, and to pay 
differentiation, which this ties back into tipping and, and paying. I think it's, you know, restaurants are becoming more politicized because of the nature of, of our changing demographics and our changing labor market. Well, and let's just say I feel like it was aberrant that they weren't political for so long. Right. I mean, we've talked about this before, that the revolution would not have happened, not to get crazy, but the revolution <laughs> only happened because of taverns, right? I mean, it's like, it, it's actually very important that the, you know, political world and the hospitality world cross. Obviously, I don't think you should mistreat someone. I think there are expectations of hospitality and that, you know, the restaurant world can set, uh, you know, set a standard that's that maybe all of society can learn from. But I also think, and I'll, I'll, I've said this before, that it's fine for a restaurateur to be political and even to express those feelings in the dining room. Yep. Well, I also think it's for a long time, the, the back of the house staff has been largely invisible uh, to much of the restaurant going public. Not totally invisible. You have people busting the tables, but you don't really think about them. But when you're suddenly, you know, you're I mean, part of the whole dynamic of the of the Sanders episode was that the owner went and talked to the staff in the back and, and said basically what do you think about this and I think it, it starts to bring to light that this isn't just about some owner's political opinions it's about uh, a, an owner taking into account the, her staff and her the people who work for her and, and advocating for them which is something that more and more restaurateurs I think are starting to do or starting to realize that they're going to have to because laws are getting passed that directly affect their industry. So let me ask you a question. Hannah and I were talking about this the other night. Like if you were a restaurateur and Sarah Huckabee Sanders showed up, would you refuse her service knowing what you know now, knowing that you know it's going to affect your restaurant? Like, okay, the Red Hand in Lexington has not opened a day since this happened. So people are losing wages. People are not employed. Uh, and it has affected other restaurants named Red Hen, including one in D.C. and one in New Jersey. So there has been like collateral damage in other areas far from where this incident happened. Knowing that, that if you took a stand, that it could potentially hurt many others in the, in the periphery, would you do it? And I think to add, as we as we talked about, I think one of the greatest damages it created is it was a it was a distraction. Yeah. I mean, we had something really important going on at this time or at the border, and suddenly people were talking about restaurants. Yeah, and I think anyone knows me. I'm I'm much very practical minded, and if you you stage it that way, and you say in order to what to to make a just to make a political statement, I uh, I think. The answer we know, <laughs> you, know, you know, with hindsight of what's going right. to flow from it. But I mean, I'm sure the restaurateur in Lexington had no, no clue idea. that this would happen. I mean, you're just this small 26-seat restaurant right. in, in a very small historic Virginia town, and you're taking a stand based on your employees, and suddenly next thing you know, you're national news. But now we all know what could potentially happen. And you have to, you have to, I think you have to weigh that sort of thing, knowing the yep. political atmosphere we're in, and everyone is just... They're they're out, they're loaded for bear now. Yep. Yep. Yeah, it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting to see if we have more of these dining room debates and rebellion. You know, because this wasn't the only one. Obviously, we had people coming into the homeland. Secretary was Kristen. You know, and Kristen Nielsen. Yeah, right. I, was, yep. I was about to bring that up because yeah. um, I hadn't realized that political affiliation was a protected class in D.C. So, so a thing that had happened before the Huckabee Sanders right. incident was that Kristen Nielsen, the Secretary of Homeland Security, went to a Mexican restaurant, of all things, um, at the height of, of the family separation yeah. um, debacle situation, um, and was not asked to leave, but was basically forced to leave by DSA uh, activists who came in and, and right, not yeah, the it, ownership. Yeah, that case right. it was activists yeah. who came in and were right. chanting and, and, right. and jeering and, and um, sort of drove her out. 
The restaurant didn't particularly intervene, though, either. They they seemed to be okay with, with it. I wonder if, if that was because they uh, knew that they couldn't ask her to leave. Well, you know— as- that's a good question. The it was there's a very interesting story done to the Washingtonian last yeah. week about this, about how it all happened. Uh, it happened very organically because like someone got a text saying that the secretary was eating at this restaurant, and before you knew it, there were you know a, a small group of people actually in the restaurant chanting around her table, and she didn't leave based on this. Uh, apparently, it went on for like twenty minutes, and. How uncomfortable that must have been for her, I <laughs> yeah. can't and imagine. Her poor guest. I mean, and and it was even became a little bit uncomfortable apparently for the protesters because there wasn't a whole lot happening and they keep chanting and for like twenty can you imagine like chanting for twenty minutes and you're really not part of this restaurant and Nothing right. changes, no. and, and they d- they right. stopped. But because I mean, they were, and it is a great story that Tim referred to. And they're, I mean, they're angry, but there isn't really an end game because this wasn't a planned yeah. action; it was sort of impromptu. Mm-hmm. So they they didn't come in, you know, saying like, "We want your signature on this." They yeah. were just like, "Boo!" Well, that's right. Yeah. No, right. We're <laughs> going to boo for twenty minutes until we, <laughs> we can't boo anymore. Get all our yeah. Out. Yeah, I mean, that said, though, I think there, there's the one different dynamic is they went into a restaurant, which is though it's a place of public accommodation is private, but there'd be absolutely no issue with people standing on street corners uh, and protesting everybody whose political opinions they don't agree with going into restaurants and stuff like that, and basically saying if you. If you continue down these political action course of action, we're going to protest and make it so you don't have a social life because everywhere you go, there's you'll be have people yelling at you on the sidewalk. I think that's very much in the spirit of, of allowable protest. But the other ones become more complicated because you mix public and accommodations with private property and businesses, and, and then you get into what can a restaurateur do versus what can people do going into a, a private space, and it, it gets murky at that point. Apparently, the police were called at some point mm-hmm. during this. This isn't at the Mexican yep. restaurant, but it's not clear who called them. The owner seemed sympathetic. The Even the restaurant patrons whose meals were interrupted seemed sympathetic. Um, and the police eventually came, but, uh, you know, kind of sort of after the fact yep. and talked to the protesters. And the secretary did not leave uh, based on the protesters. But after they left, then she got up and left. So it was, you know, it's sort of effective. Um, I guess a protest, but uh, then again, it's like I don't know. I don't know if, if they expected her to like feel so uncomfortable that she would get up and immediately leave, and they could like claim a quick victory. That didn't yeah. happen, right? And so, and it seemed like a lot of what was coming out of DC that it, it, this violated all the social norms there, which is that when you see these people, you let them do what they do, right? And right. That, that there's always been acceptance that administrations change, and that's just how it is. So, as someone who lives there and knows the scene, and in fact, I know it's been a problem. I feel like for restaurant tours that the current administration doesn't really like to go out to like the hot places the way the Obama administration. And now, now we're driving them even further away potentially. What's going to happen next? I mean. You know, I I can't imagine that they're going to go out much yeah, these days. Right? Uh, there's clearly a uh, a network of people decidedly trying to make their, these people's lives miserable, and yeah. they don't they don't I don't think they they care one whit about uh, whether it's a public disruption or not. Right. Yeah. 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 No, I think it'll continue. Okay. So restaurants, as uh, you know, once again. Sort of a scene <laughs> for the, the yeah. modern political uh, modern political debates.
right. And that is all for this edition of The Winnow. We recorded today's episode in the nonpartisan podcasting studios at the Post and Courier building in downtown Charleston, South Carolina. If you enjoy listening to The Winnow, please help other listeners find us too. Just go to iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you download your podcasts and like us or leave a rating. The Winnow is a production of the Post and Courier and Palmetto New Media. Our producer today was the... Politically charged. J. Emery Parker. Our theme music is by the Bluestone Ramblers. Until next time, I'm Robert Moss. And I'm Hannah Raskin. Now get out there and eat.